not standing for the reading of God's word. Today we're covering the entire chapter, chapter 31. We'll start off by just reading the first few verses. There we find the words written. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be his first son. Father, we thank you for being involved in the world in which you created. Thank you for being involved in human lives, especially those, Lord, that you have called from all nations to yourself. Thank you, thank you that we can refer to yourself, to ourselves as your children because you adopted us through the work of Jesus Christ, your Son. But we ask today that you would, by the Holy Spirit, help us to see how you acted in the past. <coughs> how we understand and live today. We desire to honor you with our lives. We desire that you are pleased for the decisions that we make. We want you to be spoken of well in every place by all. So we ask that you would be with us now. We ask these things in the name of the one who is greater than Abraham your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So I was talking, Pastor Mike was reading, he uh, made me aware of something that had happened uh, here in the central Pennsylvania area, uh, an event that happened a number of years ago, to which uh, he asked me to look into, and I did, and I thought it was interesting, uh, the event when I read about it. History Channel did a good job reporting uh, what happened. It, was, uh, it happened at the end of March in the year 1984. Robert Hearsay, who was at that time the uh, owner of the Baltimore Coast, decided to move the team to Indianapolis. But what made this move unsettling and different from other moves was the way in which it was done. Uh, it was done under the cover of darkness, uh, in the night when he made the move. Uh, their uh, headquarters had been in the Owings Mills area in Maryland, but that night he had hired uh, made large, uh, made large trucks with green yellow trucks with red writing on them, a number of them to show up with movers and to pack up all the belongings, and the trucks headed out one by one overnight until very early in the morning when the last truck left, followed by the staff that will remain with the team uh, that day. And this happened all while the city of Baltimore slept. The next day, the fans awoke to find out that they no longer had a team. And those were those diehard fans that came out to grieve the loss that they watched their team or the remains thereof of the caravan drive away, headed off to Indianapolis. Now, that, that, that's interesting until you take into account uh, what had happened earlier that year that precipitated these events. So earlier that year, uh, they had been in talks with the city of Baltimore about making improvements to the stadium, Memorial Stadium, in which they played that year. And for whatever reason, perhaps it was the record of Baltimore Colts at that time that had fallen into a slump, they weren't doing as well as they had done 
in years past. The, the Lord days seem to be behind them at this point. Uh, but they perhaps did not want to make those improvements and invest that kind of money. Uh, and so he was considering, and they were asking him whether or not he was going to move the team. And so there was this whole uh, issue of negotiations. And if you, if you talk to both sides, you'll find out that neither of them had the same story about how the negotiations went. The only thing that we know is that the negotiations did not go well. Uh, and so, uh, as a result, uh, the city moved into legal action. And so the state legislature of uh, Maryland decided on March 28th to pass a law to grant the city of Baltimore the legal right to seize the ownership of the team from Bar Hearsay. Uh, on March 28th is when they passed that law. That day, he then accepted uh, immediately an offer from Indianapolis and moved the team that night, right? And you can understand why he did that. It was most likely because of fear that he knew what would happen the very next day. If he had not moved that night, most likely he would not have kept the team the next day. They would have moved in on him. And so he saw the moment, he saw the time, and he launched out and he left. Now, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying you can understand why that is. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation you felt like that you just needed to escape. I'm sure that's how Bob Hearsay felt about what was going on in light of what had just happened uh, with the state at that time. Uh, I know I've been in some of those situations in life. And that's what we're going to look at in Jacob's life today. We're going to see a situation that he's trying to escape. Uh, and he does it uh, in a covert manner. Uh, and there's reasons behind that. Well, let me just kind of recap from last week. Uh, Pastor Mike shared with us and made us aware that after the 14 years of service for the daughters of Laban, uh, that Laban uh, worked out an additional deal with Jacob, which led to another six years of servitude. Probably would have gone longer, but uh, the nature of things that worked out changed those circumstances and ended that, that contract uh, abruptly. I, my, my goal today is simply to focus on, although there's a number of things we can look at, God's activity in Jacob's life at this point uh, in his life. I'm simply going to raise for us two ideas to consider and then one potential implication from these ideas. Now the text is lengthy. It's uh, 55 verses. I will read every verse. I will read a, a large portion of those verses to us, but they're going to be parts that I'll just summarize for the, the sake of time. Uh, but we'll hit the parts that I want to highlight as related to, to God. Now the concept I'm going to raise today uh, is part of a larger concept that's played out in Scripture. And so I can't cover all of the different things, and so there will be perhaps some thoughts that you'll have, and you'll say, well, why didn't he address this, or why didn't he address that? And it's just because I can't do it all in one message. And so we'll have to hopefully, as future messages, uh, come up and be able to, to retouch on this topic again. And so here's the first idea that I want to raise from the text, and that's simply this, that God delivers his people from harm. That God delivers his people from harm. Now, I realize as soon as I make that statement that there are those of you who, for you, an objection immediately went up in your mind. Now, perhaps that's based on your life circumstance. I was reading this week about a lady named Donna. Uh, she's a Christian, uh, uh, the wife of a church planter. Uh, and she was sharing a story about when she was doing a devotion with her eight-year-old daughter. Uh, and when she came to this one particular devotion, uh, it said, uh, God is watching over us and protecting us. And when she started to read the devotions to her eight-year-old daughter, when she came to the words and protecting us, she, she just leaped right over them. She just omitted those words and did not read them to her daughter, which was 
curious to her daughter. And she said this was not the only time. Whenever she came to verses in the Bible that alluded to the idea of divine protection of God's people, she just waved those verses away because she had had some experiences in her life that led her to the conclusion that, hey, that has to be just fiction. And so she was very cynical about this idea. And perhaps that's where you are today. And I'll simply ask that before you um, start to move on to your afternoon activities, now that I've raised this idea that you might have some issues with, at least just hear me out. Uh, then afterwards you can move on to your afternoon plans or after service plans. Well, <clears throat> the first thing the text does for us is gives us three pictures of how God might deliver us from harm. Uh, as his people. The first picture is one of divine guidance, divine guidance. Uh, in the verses that we read at the opening of the message, we discovered that uh, the family relationships have taken a turn for the worse. Uh, God's been active in Jacob's life, as we heard about last week, for his benefit. But just because you're being blessed doesn't always mean that others are happy that you're receiving good things in your life. Sometimes, because of the way that human nature works now that we've been affected by sin, I can have a, a negative effect on people's emotions. And so Jacob's brother-in-laws are watching as his wealth is increasing, and for them, they're not happy about that. Uh, there is probably some envy, uh, some malice, which they're beginning to harbor in their hearts, because they're not they're looking and thinking about themselves, as often we do as sinners, uh, very self-focused, and so they're thinking about, well, while Jacob's wealth is increasing, our inheritance is decreasing. And all that he's getting is from our father. He's making his wealth off of our dad. And so they're not feeling so good about Jacob anymore. And Jacob overhears their talking. Uh, not sure how he did that, where he was at. Uh, they are in a family environment. Perhaps he was just somewhere near. But not only does do his brothers have an issue with him, his brother-in-laws, but he's found out that his father-in-law has soured towards him as well. Perhaps the brothers have been talking to their dad, sharing their feelings, and this has affected their father's feelings about Jacob. So Jacob's not in a positive environment any longer. Uh, one of the things that we do notice about Jacob's character, at least that seems to be applied from the things we've heard about him so far, is that Jacob is a patient man. And, and so uh, this could present a potential problem for Jacob. Uh, he has a, a negative family environment, and in addition to that, uh, He's one of those people who tend to want to try to wait things out to see how they work out before he would make a move. And it's into this context that God enters. In verse 3, we see that God gives divine guidance uh, to Jacob when he tells him that his time with uh, Laban's family and clan is up. And it's time for him to return home to Abraham's family uh, and to his father Isaac's household and back where his brother Esau is. Uh, that time has come in God's plan for him. And so uh, we do see, thankfully, that Jacob does obey God. And one of the things we realize is that there are some occasions on which God may protect us from harm by giving us divine guidance. So that's one way that God may protect us, is give us divine guidance in life. And when he does, we then ought to be like Jacob, that is to listen and obey Another example of this is in 1 Samuel 23 with David and Kyla, where Saul is coming and he's trying to decide what, what he should or should not do. And he asks God for guidance, and God gives him guidance, and David obeys, and that works out to keep him from harm. So, so that's one way that God, we see the text that God can guide us. Another way, a second way uh, that we get a picture of in the text 
is, is one of not only divine guidance, but of divine providence. Divine providence. So uh, Jacob now has God's approval to transition uh, and move outside of his clan that he's now been adopted into uh, and start the moving uh, process. Uh, and he does what I think uh, that any of us who are married should take advice from or take a lead on. If you're about to make a major life transition and you're a married man, the first and best decision that you can make after prayer is to consult your wife to make sure she believes that this is a good move as well. Now, Jacob, he has a, a different circumstance. He just doesn't have one wife. He has two wives. So he calls him out to his workplace where, for him, this is the best place for privacy uh, out in the field where he works because he lives in a family encampment. And so going out to the field away from people is probably the best place to have a heart-to-heart -heart discussion with your wife away from those who will be listening in the family, especially when you're about to separate from the family and you have a specific way that you want to do that. And so that's what he does. He calls them out uh, to have a conversation with them. And we get to hear, return to the text to hear what he says to his wife. Verses 4 through 14. Turn back with me there to the text, Genesis 31, verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not forbid him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said the strike shall be your wages, then all the flock were strike. Thus God had taken away uh, the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that made with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing. I am the God of Bethel, uh, where you anointed the pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise. Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So what does Jacob tell his wives? Well, he recounts for them what has happened and that they have been, uh, had a chance to observe in his life. He tells his, his wives, hey, listen, uh, your dad does not feel the same way about me that he used to feel. Uh, he's changed. But thankfully, God has not changed how he's felt about me. Though your dad has changed, God has not changed. And he's stuck with me and been faithful with me through all of the, the hardship that I've endured uh, working in your dad's company and working for him. He said, just, just think back about the years, how hard I, I worked for your father and the effort that I put in. And yet, your dad, on several occasions, tried to cheat me out of my paycheck. But every time there was an opportunity, he renegotiated the terms of the contract, the agreement that we had made, so that he might benefit and I might suffer. But thank you because the God of my fathers was with me, that he would not allow uh, Laban to achieve his intended purposes. He worked it out so that every time the contract was changed, uh, we were renegotiated so that Laban might benefit. God made it so that I ended up benefiting uh, as a result of that. Uh, and so everything that I possess has come from God. And then he told him about this dream. Now, there are those who think that uh, Jacob may be embellishing here just to convince his wives. It's not clear whether or not this is one dream or two dreams that he has combined together for brevity. That there are things that in the, in the dream, as he retells it, 
a thing to, to allude to that this may have been two separate occurrences that he had just com combined together uh, in this place. But what we do know is that he refers and sees God's divine providence or hand uh, in the way things have turned out in chapter 30 that Pastor Mike shared with us last week. Although, of course, the narrator doesn't show that Jacob reflects on those years of service and he says, listen, the success that I had gained uh, in these last six years has been because of God's work uh, in my life. Now, we notice in the text that there's nothing miraculous that happens, at least as the narrator records it. God just works through the ordinary processes of animal husbandry and animal reproduction to achieve this uh, in Jacob's life. Uh, so that when the, uh, the lambs and the kids are born, uh, they're born as a type that relates to the contract that has been made or adjusted by Laban uh, with Jacob so that he is not cheated out of, but actually prospers as a result of the change of the contract. And one of the things that informs us is just because we don't see God working doesn't mean that God is not at work. God is often at work, at work in the activities and the unseen. Just because God is silent with us doesn't mean God's not doing anything in the background. And often, God seems to like to work through the very ordinary circumstance of life to guide them, to arrange them, to order them, so that they achieve his purposes and his ends. And we're not always aware of that because we can't see how it's all working out because we don't have our hands on every uh, part of the puzzle, but God does. So because he does and his knowledge and guidance of, and supervision and sovereignty over all things, he achieves his ends often through the very ordinary things of life. Perhaps for you, this will be one of the ways that God perhaps has or will deliver you in the future. He will just order the ordinary circumstances of life to achieve his ends, to protect you and keep you from harm. Maybe for some of you, you've experienced this in a way such as perhaps there was an ailment that you felt that led you to go to the doctor. And when you went to the doctor, you discovered that there was something far more serious going on. But if that one ailment had not happened, you would have never discovered the more serious issue that you were facing, God's providence in your life. Uh, or perhaps it was like for me in my, in my life, there was a point in my life where I was in one position at, at a former job and I was, ended up, because of the life circumstances, forced to change positions. It was not something that I wanted, uh, not something that I was looking forward to, or not something that I even desired, but I was forced into making that move and making that transition. What I did not know, but now I know from looking back with hindsight, was that that's the exact job that I needed to prepare me for future employment. Because that job gave me skills that I did not have to prepare me for the unique role that I would be taking in the future. I, I did not know that, but God did. And God arranged the circumstances uh, in my life so that I would be prepared. And perhaps that's what he's done in your life as well. Because God knows how he's going to work out whatever it is that he's going to do. He just arranges the circumstance in your life to protect you. And he does that through divine providence. One of the two books that we often refer to when we talk about looking at divine providence where God is working behind the scenes are the two books that bear women's names, Ruth and Esther. I often mention there a scene that God works behind the scenes to achieve his purposes and to the very ordinary things of life. I bring you to the third picture that we find in the text. Not only do we have divine guidance, divine providence, but we also see divine intervention. Divine intervention. So uh, Rachel and Leah uh, hear their husband's uh, impassioned plea about what's going on as he recounts the events and God's speaking to him 
Uh, and thankfully, they're on board. They're on board with their husband to make this uh, family transition and to uproot the family from the life they've known to move to a place they do not know to be uh, with his, his family. They, they have their own reasons that they are willing to support this. They share they feel like their father has not done right by them either. And so they concur and say, hey, listen, not only has, has our dad not done right by you, he's not done right by us. So whatever it is that God told you to do, let's do it. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing when you have a husband and wife on the same page, moving in the same direction? Yeah, I think that's a great thing. And so that's what we have here. So they're all in agreement. They're all saying, hey, yes, we want to do this. So what does Jacob do? Well, he calls in his Mayflower trucks. Uh, he loads them up. Puts his wife on camels and his sons and daughter Dinah on camels. Uh, drives his flocks and herds and real servants he's gained, uh, and they move out. And he does it without notifying Laban about uh, what he's doing, that he's leaving the family, the clan uh, that he's been with for the last 20 years. Now, the text lets us know that he does this as a most opportune time. Like Bob here said, he realized for him the most opportune time was in the evening, at night, while people were sleeping. And Jacob decides to do this while it's sheep shearing time. Uh, this was a time that was in the spring, perhaps April, May, or just before that. Uh, this was a wonderful family thing where people would gather all the sheep in a place that was way outside of the encampment. Uh, they would bring all of the sheep and stuff, and this would be a time to, to shear them. And it took large amounts of manpower. So in order to do that, a lot of the men who were in the camp would leave the home camp to go out. There just tons of work. There's an ancient document that said, like, if you wanted to do it three days, you needed, like, hundreds of guys to do this, depending on the size of the flock. And so... Everybody's away. Perhaps Laban looks like it's about three days' journey away from the home camp. So he's three days away. They're busy all day. And at the end of that time of sheep shearing, they have a big celebration. So this is a good thing. So hard work for a few days, then you have a big celebration. Everybody's away. So while everybody's away, Jacob's like, they're three days away. This is a good time to make a break for them. You know, nobody's watching. And so he makes a break. But it does seem like someone is watching based on what the text says. Somebody at the home was just like the news reporter that was hanging around, uh, and they catch him, and they see the, the, the camel caravan of Jacob and his family making it off into the distance. They're like, I don't think he's going where he's supposed to be going. And so what do they do? They head directly towards Laban. And they find him three days later, and they tell Laban, hey, listen, hey, your son-in-law, you know, the one you're not feeling so great about right now, I think he's leaving. Like, I think he's getting out of Dodge, like, permanently. So Laban, what does he do? Well, you get the men who are your kinsmen because you're going to ride them down. Because you're about to inflict harm on your son-in-law. And so what does he do? He gathers up his kinsmen and they ride out to ride him down. So it's probably just men who are riding down. And they're probably making large strides throughout the day. And so they do this because they're after, uh, after Jacob uh, to take him. And uh, Laban does not have... Um, a good feeling about Jacob as he's running him down, as he's taking his dogs away. And so let me share with you uh, from the text as we get to read through it. This is going to be the lengthy part of the text where we'll get a chance to see how Laban feels as he catches up with Jacob and his intent. So we're going to pick up in verse 24, and we're going to actually read to verse 44. And this will be the largest section of the text that we'll pick up here. So verse 24 to 44, we'll get to see what happens. Verse 24, but God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob 
Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tent in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you free, flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went to Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of two female servants. But he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the weight of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household God. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, but I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you acquired it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. These flocks are my flock. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for the children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. We see from the text that's repeated throughout this as we look at focus on God and put the spotlight on him that the only thing that is restraining Laban is God. God intervenes in human affairs to protect Jacob from Laban's ill intent. 
Uh, as, a, as a result, we end up with what seems to be from an old Seinfeld episode. It, it seems to be the day of festivals. And now what we end up having is the airing of grievances uh, in this text. And so Laban starts off as the head of the clan with his grievances as he portrays himself to be the brokenhearted father. Now we may have questions about that from what we've already seen in Laban's character, from the very things that his daughters have already said about him early in the text, his lack of concern for their future should they be divorced or should their husband die. Uh, and so, but he, he pretends like, uh, you know, if, if you had just told me that you were going to leave, I would have threw you a big party. I would have sent you off in a way that our custom uh, would have wanted to. We could have had a big celebration. I would have hugged everybody, kissed everybody. This could have been a joyous occasion, but you messed it up. You have done foolishly. Uh, and then he says, and then on top of that, you still have my stuff. You know my household gods, how important those things are to me, and you don't run off with it. Right? And, and so at this point, uh, Jacob is, is the one who's the defendant and, and, and later paints himself as a plaintiff before they can because they have an audience of the tribe or the clan that's watching and observing this interaction between the two of the two of the relatives. And, and so what does what does Jacob do uh, in this situation? Because he doesn't know what's going on, but he, he, he's in the lower seat. He's not the head of the clan. He's been part of the clan. He's, he's under the leadership of Jacob. Uh, he, he takes more of a, a docile position to start off with. And so what he says to, to Laban is, hey, look, Laban, look, it, it, you can search everything that I have. The only stuff that I've taken is mine because he believes that he's innocent. He does not know that his wife uh, has stolen them. Uh, and so there's tension in the text as Laban gets the chance to search and actually, Jacob pronounced the death penalty on Rachel without even knowing because he said, listen, I'm so sure that, that I'm not taking anything that's yours. Search everywhere you want to look. Look at all my stuff. And if you find anything that somebody took that's, that was yours, you can kill him. Right? He's throwing his wife on the bus, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't know that he's putting her in that position. And so you watch the tension build as he searches through all the stuff. She escapes because she tells her dad when he shows up that she can't because the way of women is upon her, which says something about the God that's going on, but I won't go into all of that at this moment. But that's uh, how, how the, the, the things transpire. Once he comes back and he has no proof that anything has been taken, that all that Jacob has is actually Jacob's possessions, then Jacob's position changes, and he now moves into the uh, attack position, if you will. Now that the kinsmen are available, he, he pictures himself as a plaintiff, and now he puts uh, Laban on the defense. So now what he begins to do is open up and share from his heart how he's felt about how he's been treated these last 20 years in working for his father-in-law, and especially highlighting these last six years of what's happened in their relationship. And so he begins to, to air out 20 years of frustration as he retorts uh, Laban's claims and, and lays out about how he's been mistreated and and how he worked hard for Laban, and how Laban uh, intentionally tried to take advantage of him and didn't care about him, uh, and didn't do what a family member as the head of the clan should have done. And what we realize is the only reason that, and in the midst of all these tense feelings between two men, and why it has not come to blows, is because of God. The only reason physical violence is not happening in the text is because God has stepped in to mitigate the circumstances. It's the only reason that Jacob even has the 
opportunity to share how he feels about what has happened in his life. And that then brings out the point of the text that I want to raise. There are on rare occasions, there have been times when God has intervened in human history to deliver his people. Uh, we see that in the book of Exodus. We see that with Daniel in the lion's day. We see it uh, with Peter when he's in jail. And then we see it most clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ as God himself entered human history to take our plight upon himself and to take upon himself all that we have done to offend him. And then he raised his son from the dead. And through the cross of Christ, God delivers us from the greatest harm that any human can face. And what is that greatest harm that any human can face? Ultimately, that when judgment happens, that God finds us guilty of sin and we must then face his eternal wrath. God rescues us through Jesus Christ. In the text later, we talked about how God transferred the sheep from Laban to uh, him. He pictures the idea that God actually rescued the sheep from under a bad shepherd to put them under a good shepherd. And the same thing actually happened with us when we placed faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us that God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, which was ruled by the forces and power of evil, and transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. And so now we're under the rule and lordship of the good shepherd. And the great deliverance that we look forward to now is not deliverance from sin, but the redemption of our bodies at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question must be, does the text intend for us to understand from what it says about how God delivers Jacob, that God always delivers his people from suffering and from harm? Does the Bible teach that believers, when God is with them, should not expect that they should ever face hardship, suffering, or harm in life? No. In, Laban, uh, in Jacob's speech to Laban in the very text, Jacob actually recounts the very opposite of that fact. When he talks about the 20 years, that, that's his grievance. The grievance is, hey, I've been working for you, and things have been harsh. The conditions have been harsh. I've had to suffer. There have been nights when I've had to go without sleep. I've had to suffer through working for you. And yet, what we notice in the text is that God, at the beginning, before he went, and at the end, when he tells him to leave, that God has been with Jacob through all of it, even the suffering and harsh conditions that he dealt with. The book of Job speaks in the opposite direction, that there, even though you might live a righteous life, that suffering still, even though God is with you, may enter your life. This brings me to a text that Paul lays out for believers that applies to us today. This is what Paul says to Timothy, a pastor, a uh, young pastor that's under his influence that he's brought up uh, like a son. And he says this to him. He says, you, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and apostles will go on from bad people to deceiving and being deceived. The Bible actually tells us that the believers should expect that suffering will be a part of their human experience. But does that then negate the fact that God does at times deliver his people from harm? No. 
Paul has stated it right in the text. Though he suffered, yet God rescued him out of his sufferings. He had experienced God's deliverance on a number of occasions, and yet still suffering happened in his life, although he was faithfully serving God. That brings me to the second idea that I want to raise in the text, and that is this, that God delivers his people according to his purposes. God delivers his people according to his purposes. For this, let's return to the text. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 28. This is when God meets with uh, Jacob and Bethel. Let me read this to you, and then we'll see how these two things connect. Uh, and this is what he said. Uh, and behold, the Lord stood above it, that was the, the stairway, the pathway that connected heaven and, and earth, and said, uh, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your, fa your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will be and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So as we consider what happens in Genesis 31, in light of what God says in Genesis chapter 28, we see that there is a connection between God's purposes for Jacob's life and his deliverance of Jacob in his life. God's purpose was to work through the family of Abraham and his descendants so that he might bring a blessing to all the families of the earth, the other nations, right? And in order to do that, he has to have the family to work through. He's already made a covenant relationship with Jacob and said to him, I'm going to bring with you and bring you back safely. So in light of that, when we see what happens in Jacob's life as it deals with God's deliverance of him from harm, it lines up exactly with what God's purpose was for Jacob's life. And that's why God delivers him, at least in this case, was because it was to fulfill his purposes in the earth. If Laban had been able to live out his ill intent towards Jacob, God's purposes would not have been fulfilled. And thus God is in Ball. See, God often will connect his deliverance to his purposes. And as a result of that, we get to see God's covenant faithfulness. We see the same kind of idea appear in Paul's life. right? So Paul, uh, at one point, is, is on a ship. He's being transferred. And while he's on the ship, there is a storm that, that, that brews up in the area. And it's a terrible storm at sea. And things are not going well, and so the sailors are trying to adjust to what's happening. But it's in this text, as Paul addresses the men, that we see this connection again come to the forefront, God's purposes and God's deliverance. Notice what the text says here. Paul says to them, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete, and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I have urged you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. God delivers Paul because of his purpose for Paul's life. What is his purpose? According to what the angel said that Paul relates to us is that God's purpose is that Paul, 
who he has chosen, will stand before the emperor to announce the good news of the true Son of God that has come into the world to set men free. And so because that was God's intended purpose for his life, even a storm could get in the way of keeping Paul from achieving God's purpose. So God delivers Paul, and in his mercy, he also grants the life of all the other sailors who are with Paul because God is merciful. But there we see there's a connection between God's deliverance and God's purpose. Which brings me to the implication that I wanted to raise, which is simply this. Think back. So God has delivered Jacob so that he can return to the land, so that God can continue his, his agenda in the world, his mission that he's on to work through uh, Abraham's family to redeem humanity and bring humanity back into a relationship with himself. And that's why he delivers Jacob. He delivers Paul who's on a ship because he wants Paul to announce what God has done through Christ to the emperor. And so although Paul finds him in a situation that could claim his life by ordinary circumstances, God delivers him and all who those who are with him so that he might fulfill God's purpose on the earth. One implication that we might take from this is that when God does deliver us, it is an opportunity for us to pursue the mission of God. When we experience God's deliverance in our lives, it's not just about us getting something for ourselves, but ultimately God has a reason for it, and it might be so that you might continue to pursue God's purpose in the world. Notice how Paul puts this in the letter to Ephesians in that often quoted verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, notice what? For a purpose, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God delivered you from the harm of your own sin and the penalty that we should have incurred because of that, because of his divine justice. But God delivered us through Christ so that not just so we can have a good life and get a ticket to heaven, but ultimately because God had a purpose for us, and that is to do the good work that he had already predetermined beforehand, that we might participate in his mission in the world. So the next time that God delivers you from something, perhaps it is because God has a purpose for your life. And it is there is something for you to do that's in God's agenda and God's mission in the world. And that's what we need to be looking forward to. Brothers and sisters, God still delivers today. I share with you a story from my own life. Uh, so I was with uh, Pat on Friday for lunch, and uh, we got a chance to connect and go out. And we went to one of my favorite places, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so we're at Chick-fil-A. We're sitting down. So we were talking about the message, and, uh, and I was sharing with them. You know, as I was recounting the text and I was working through uh, different things, that, potential issues and problems, uh, as, as I considered the ideas and concepts that are raised from the text, I began to recount various instances in my own life where God had delivered me from harm uh, and things that, I could, that could, could have been unfortunate. Sometimes very physical danger. There's, there was points in my life where I, I found myself on the wrong end of a loaded weapon. Um, and God delivered me out of those situations. And so one of the particular situations that may relate more so to you, perhaps you won't find yourself in that situation, but it was one that was a little bit more relatable. So when I was working at my former church, uh, I was at this point in, in my time there, I was serving as the prison ministry coordinator, which was 
uh, of almost full-time or part-time position at that point. And for, due to some financial reasons uh, in the church, because the church's finances are based on the generosity of God's people. That, that's how we get our budget. God touches hearts, people give, and that's how churches have money to function uh, in the world. And so because of whatever was going on in the life of church, they were having to reallocate funds, uh, and they were having to consider how they were going to reallocate those funds. So uh, my boss at that time, who happened to be a good friend of mine who had gone to seminary with, had gone to a meeting uh, in the early part of the afternoon right after lunch. When he came back, he called me out of the office, and he said, hey, can we uh, meet outside in my car in the parking lot? Now, you know when you get a call like that, that's probably not a good, you know, good thing that's about to happen. So he set out in the thing, and because he's my friend, he cares about me, he said, brother, he said, I, I don't have any other way to tell you this. I just have to break the news to you. So I went to the meeting, uh, and what they talked about, they talked about different positions, and your position came up, and they plan to eliminate your position in the next month, and you're probably going to have to find another job. Now, I was in seminary at the time, and finding a job that went along with allowing me to be able to go to class and stuff like that was a hard endeavor. I had a hard time at the beginning trying to find a job that worked with me being able to complete my seminary degree. So here I was having to consider potentially that I might have to stop doing seminary or, or do something else for a while to be able to, to take care of myself. And so I was on the horns of a dilemma. And so what I did was after he told me that, broken news, and of course as my good friend, and he always was thinking about God, he simply said, he said, brother, remember, God is sovereign. And I said, yeah, he is. He's sovereign. I was trying to, trying to reconcile that with the news I'm about to do my job. <laughs> Yeah, the Lord was not amen before the song. <laughs> so what do we do? Well, we went to the one who was in control, uh, and we prayed in the car. We prayed, I prayed, and I told some of the friends who were uh, fellow seminarians and uh, shared with them what was going on in my life, and, and they prayed for me. And, uh, and two months passed, and right when it came to be the time that I was supposed to, to lose my job, something strange happened. Uh, what ended up happening was that when my boss went to find out what was happening with my job and whether or not I was going to be fired, he found out that they had actually changed me to full-time position. Mm. He didn't know how that happened. We still don't have an explanation of why that happened. Don't know. Don't know if somebody was advocating when the decision was made. But we ran with it. And then a new pastor was hired over my area. And I ended up getting a promotion. And so I served in that position a few more months. And as soon as I got a promotion to my new job, they eliminated my old job. And brothers and sisters, all I can simply say is that God still delivers. Why does he do it? It is to achieve his purposes in the world. And brothers and sisters, when you find yourself on the other end of God's gracious deliverance in your life, don't simply think about what you can get out of it, but think about what it is that God has for you to do to advance his mission in the world. Let us pray that we'll sing our final song this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think about your word. Uh, Lord, may we think not only about ourselves when you show up in our lives. Help us not to be self-serving, but to look and thank you and give uh, Lord to you that you and your mercy have shown up and delivered us so that we might serve you and move your agenda forward in the world. We thank you uh, that you do deliver and get involved in human activity. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll sing our final song.